Our topic this week out of the book of Genesis chapter 3, as well as Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, the promise of the blessed hope. And so last week we read some from Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, where the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. And so we have the first lie and the deception. And Eve falls for his lie and eats from the tree. And then the Lord uh, condemns the serpent. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed. That's in verse 14. And then the very next verse, verse 15, before the Lord gets to the consequences for Adam and Eve's sin, he tells them and to the Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And this is an amazing uh, word of God, a wonderful promise, an amazing promise, but also the timing of it, as we looked at last week. And we have to understand that and really get that into our minds and our hearts, that Adam and Eve had sinned. They had disobeyed God. They had broken their covenant with him. And the first thing he does, he comes to them and he draws them out. And then as they confess, he condemns the serpent that Satan used. And then he pronounces a judgment on the serpent, but a promise to Adam and Eve. Even before he tells them what the consequences of their sins and their result will be, he offers them this wonderful promise. And that changes the whole picture of God that many people have who feel like God is wanting to just be out there to catch us in a wrong and condemn us and, 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 and judge us and, and, and just harsh and demanding. And here we see God coming and God giving this amazing, wonderful prom promise. And on the other hand, then you got those that just think God is just so wishy-washy. There is no judgment. But here in this text, we see both. He pronounces judgment against Satan, that he's going to bruise the seed, the seed of the woman, the seed of Eve. It's going to come a child. It's going to come from her lineage. And it's going to bruise the head of the serpent. And in doing so, he is going to get bruised by the serpent. There's going to be a battle that takes place. Eve's seed is going to win, but in doing so, he's going to be wounded. All the way back from the very beginning, God sets the stage. God gives this prophecy right there in Genesis chapter 3, from the beginning of time, of what is going to take place, and we don't see the reality of that for another 4,000 years, but God foreknowing gave that promise to humanity right from the very beginning. And so how can we know who this seed is? And I'd imagine from that moment on, every child that Eve gave birth to, her and Adam would discuss, do you think it's this? Do you think it's, it's, it's Abel? Do you think maybe it's Cain? Do you think maybe it's Seth? And no doubt they had hundreds of children. They lived 900 years, so I'm sure they had lots of children in that time. And so each one, maybe this is the one that God promised that's going to finally deliver us. That's going to finally go to battle for us. It's going to bring us back into the Garden of Eden. 
and crush that serpent's head, to bruise that serpent's head. Child after child after child. So how do we know which is the right child? How do we know which is the right seed? How can we know? Well, God has given us other prophecies so that we can know. And one point that uh, Rabbi Paul makes in Galatians chapter 3 regarding this seed, as well as the seed that's promised to Abraham, so it was promised to Eve, and also then reiterated hundreds of years later to Abraham, close to over 2,000 years later, to Abraham. Now, to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Messiah. And so to Abraham, it's a singular seed, and the same to Eve, it was a singular seed. He will crush, he will bruise your head in the singular, and you will bruise his heel in the singular. A specific seed that would come forth, and that seed would be the Messiah. Seed of Eve from the seed of Abraham. And so how do we know who this seed is? How do we know who is the real Messiah? There'll be many false messiahs. There have been down through the ages, many false messiahs. How can we know who is the true Messiah? Where would we go to find that out? Go to the internet? No, 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 no. Right? Listen to some preacher, even Rabbi Jeff? No, 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 no. Right? The word of God. We go to the word of God which gives us ample description of what this Messiah would be like. Let's go to the Jewish prophet, Isaiah, who prophesied before Babylon come and destroyed the temple. He wrote in chapter 7, verse 14, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then two chapters later, he wrote, in chapter 9, verse 6, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So some of the hints we already have, written hundreds of years in advance, is that this Messiah would come through a birth process. As a child, as a babe. Wouldn't be like some angel just appearing on the scene in blazing glory and doing battle against the devil. But they would come in a miraculous way through a virgin. And the Hebrew word there, sometimes translated as young child, a young, a young, a young woman, but obviously here, it's not much of a sign. <laughs> it was just a young woman giving birth to a, a child. So at times it's used to describe a virgin woman, like uh, with um, Isaac, Rebecca being given to Isaac, used by the same, same word. And obviously saying that Rebecca is not just a young woman, but that she's a virgin, that she's available for marriage by Isaac. And so here, obviously, in context, talking about a virgin, but should we be so surprised that God could to a virgin birth? Talking about Abraham already. Abraham and Sarah had a child, long past uh, birthing age for Sarah, and she gave a child, she gave, brought forth Isaac. And so if God could bring a child into the barren womb 
of, of Sarah, no doubt God could bring a child into a virgin's womb as well. And so that's what it's prophesying, that it would be come from a virgin. So it's getting very specific. And there would be a child. It wouldn't just be any child. It would be Emmanuel. It would be God with us. Child that would be wonderful, counselor, mighty God. Everlasting Father, everlasting of the Father. The Prince of Peace. So a special child. Now, we don't believe, and the Bible doesn't teach, of a man who becomes God. But it's talking about a God who would become man. A big difference, a great difference. An important difference. So this seed that would fight against the devil, that would bruise his head, would come from God, be born as a child, born to this earth, and yet would have divinity within him. To the same Jewish prophet Isaiah in the book, the same book, the, the chapter 53, starting in verse 2, he says, He shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So he doesn't come as some prince on earth. He doesn't come in some uh, royal liturgy, liturgy, uh, lin uh, line. Right? So, uh, he doesn't come with a golden spoon in his mouth. But lowly, root out of dry ground, and not greatly esteemed, and not with a great following, but rejected. No beauty, no riches, no fame. From a humble family, most of his life living in obscurity, and when he takes on his work, he's despised, rejected, has a difficult life, misunderstood by his family, life of sorrow, experiences grief, knows heartache, knows rejection. And how do we treat him? We hide from him, we despise him, we don't esteem him. We count him as if God has smitten him. And God has afflicted him. Very specific description. And that's exactly what took place. And still taking place today. In Yeshua's day, many people accepted him. Many people followed him. But some just for the miracles and for the food. Others just flat out rejected him. And while multitudes, thousands, maybe even 25% accepted him, that would mean that 75% did not. And today, we're no better. Judaism has written him off. 
for the most part, modern Judaism. Other secular, secular society does not esteem him, even defi, devi, uh, uh, despises him, ridicules. And then other religions don't have much use for him. Some will accept to a certain extent. Hinduism has enough gods. Hey, bring another one in. That's fine. We'll put him on the shelf too. Islam says, oh, he's a prophet. Catholicism, most of the time, it's depicted as either just a little babe in his mother's arms or a dead person. The rest of Christianity, often using his name more in vain and in curses, at least some of the people I've been around who profess to follow him. And they will use his name in prayer and honoring him. Apt description of his life, then and today. Verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. Wounded. So now it describes not only how he would be treated, now it goes into the phase of why he would come, what his role would be, how he would be bruised in his heel. He would be wounded for our transgression. As a substitute, he was bruised, not the same exact Hebrew word that's used for bruise in Genesis chapter 3, but similar meaning in translations have it as either bruised or crushed. He was bruised, not because of anything he did, but for our sins, our iniquity. Like those lambs that had to be sacrificed in the outside, just outside the Garden of Eden that God used to clothe Adam and Eve with. That would be the substitute for them. That would cover them. Because of their sin, someone else had to die. Because of their sin, the lambs had to die. Just like with Abraham, God told him to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice, but at the last minute, God put a substitute, a ram caught in the thicket. The Messiah would come as our substitute, a substitutionary atonement, would die in our place because of our sins, because of our iniquities, because of our transgressions. And as a result of his sacrifice, as a result of him being bruised for us, we experience peace. We experience healing. We experience liberation from the guilt and the sorrow and the condemnation and the judgment. We are set free because of his sacrifice in our behalf. That is his role. That is what the seed would come and do. 
And that is how he would do it. By changing places with us. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. All of us have gone astray. Not just the groups in general that I just mentioned, but all of us, every single person, have gone astray. All of us have despised him. All of us have rejected him at some point in time in our lives. All of us have not esteemed him rightly. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And thus he has laid our sins upon him. All of our sins, for everyone, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Everyone's sins were placed upon him. Not just those who are really bad. Not just those who confess. Not just those who repent. But he died for the sins of the world. As a lamb. And Isaiah wrote this long before John the Immerser comes along and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Long before John the Revelator says, The Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. As a lamb led to the slaughter. He came as that sacrifice. As the sanctuary service that God had Moses design and build with the first piece of furniture, as they come into the sanctuary, the brazen altar, where lambs were sacrificed day in and day out. Morning and evening, he would come as the lamb to be the sacrifice for our sins and all of us. And he did it before we were born. He did it before we sinned. He did it before we confessed. God first loved us. He came to us. It's like before, as we read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God didn't say, oh, Adam and Eve, I want you to battle the devil. He didn't say, Adam and Eve, I want you to bring forth a deliverer. He didn't say, Adam and Eve, when you're good, then I'll help you out. He said, I will put enmity between you and the serpent. God would step in. The Messiah would step in for us. He would step in the place for us. He would stand between us and the devil. He would take the blows. He would take the pain. He would take the darts. He would become what is hated by both sides, the enmity, the division, he would make a division for us. God acts. And then he invites us to respond. And so he died for the iniquity of us all. Everyone from the beginning of time. For all our sins. 
And since he already paid the price for all of our sins, and for every one of the sins, it's already paid for, then we're already forgiven. We enter into life already forgiven. God has already forgiven everybody. And that's a liberating thought. God's pre-love for us. That he pre-forgave us. Not, oh, when you confess, I will forgive you. Not, oh, when you're good, I will have mercy upon you. But he pre-forgave us. Now, we don't receive the benefit of that until we meet the conditions of confession and repentance. But he gives it to us freely. He already did it. He already paid for it. It's like if I pay for a, something for you, I go and buy something for you, a gift for you, and I have it shipped to your house, and it's delivered to your house, paid in full. Shipping is paid, product is paid, everything is paid. And they deliver it to your house and they leave it right in front of your door. It's yours. It's got your name on it, not my name. It's got your name on it, your address on it. It is yours. Free and clear. I didn't ask you for anything. I didn't ask you to do anything for it. It's yours. But if you never open the door and never retrieve the package and never bring it in and never open it, you never benefit from it, even though it was yours. So everybody has in their hands the gift of forgiveness. Some take it into their hearts and make use of it, but the vast majority will not. Maybe because it's not presented that way. Maybe they think they got to do something to open the package. They got to earn something to do to get the package. They got to pay something to get the package. And that's what the vast majority of religions teach. That we have to do something first to earn God's love. And then some, when they've seen that, doesn't work too good in drawing people. They, they say, well, let's go and try something else. And they say, oh, God is so loving that you don't have to do anything. No. Everybody goes to heaven. Ever been at a funeral where they didn't have the person going to heaven? Everybody just goes to heaven. God is so loving, he wouldn't condemn anyone, he won't judge anyone. He's just love, 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 love. No condition. But there is a condition. Confession, repentance, dying to self, letting go of the sins, giving them to him, dying with him, letting him make us all make us new. That comes with the package. We don't have to do it before we receive the package. We don't have to do it before he gives the package. But it comes as a part of receiving the package, the surrender to him, the giving ourselves to him. And that's the part that our human nature doesn't want to do. The Lord has already laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's what he bore, the sins of the entire world. 
from Eve to the very last. And thus he was oppressed and afflicted, and he was cut off from the land of the living. As in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, it describes that the Messiah would be cut off in the midst of the week, giving us the exact date of when he would be cut off. What does it mean to be cut off from the land of the living? What does that mean? If someone is cut off from the land of the living, what happens to them? They die. This Messiah, who would come as a child, born from a woman, born from a virgin, would grow up under difficult conditions and be rejected and despised and would die. Even though he's God with us, he would die. He would be cut off. And God gave Daniel the exact date of when he would die. The exact year and the exact day. We don't have time to get into that today, but you go to shalomadventure.com and type in Daniel 9 and a whole sermon on that, giving the timeline, the exact day, date, and the exact, the exact year, and the exact day as the Lamb of God that he would die for us, that he'd be cut off from the land of the living. Very specific. Verse 9, they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. His grave with the wicked, but with the rich. Now, in Yeshua's day, that doesn't seem to make sense. But in our day, yeah, the wicked and the rich, that comes hand in hand, right? You, know, you don't even have to say it twice, most often, it seems. But in Yeshua's day, they thought, well, if they're rich, they must be blessed from God. God is pouring out blessings upon them. That's why they have riches. So how could he be grave with the wicked, but also with the rich? It seems so strange. That's exactly what happened. Killed between two murderous thieves. And yet buried in a rich man's tomb. We can go and see that tomb. We can walk inside that tomb. What I believe is the real tomb. There are so many details of it that I mean, to find two of the exact same with all those details would be so impossible. Right outside the tomb is a huge wine press. Obviously, a rich person owned this vineyard. And right next to that is a huge cistern hold lots of water for irrigating the crops. Obviously, a rich man's garden, a rich man's vineyard. Right on two major roads, the road to Damascus, circling around Jerusalem. A prime corner for selling grapes and grape juice. Valuable land. Perfect place to kill someone and make him an example. With a stone right there that cut in such a way, that eroded in such a way that it looks like a skull. And the tomb itself, a rich man's tomb cut into the stone exactly as described. 
and large, large enough for at least two, maybe three people to be buried inside, plus a mourning area where people could go inside the stone. 10, 20 people could fit inside the stone and mourn the person laying and buried. And newly cut, as described. This tomb in Jerusalem was newly cut, and we know it was newly cut because it wasn't totally finished. There's one place for a body to be laid, fully chiseled out, and the other, 80 or 90% of it chiseled out, but not completed yet. And the one part that, the one that's chiseled out fully is on the far end. So someone, such as Mary, could kneel outside and look inside and see the very place where she said two angels were sitting, where the cloth was left. Large enough for Peter and John to run inside. A rich man's grave. Yet of himself he had nothing. Yet of himself, he had no money and killed with the wicked, thieves, murderers. Amazing details. How could Isaiah know this hundreds of years in advance? God divinely gave this prophecy so that we would know the true Messiah. Since it's so specific in the physical details and is so accurate in the physical details, we know that the spiritual details are accurate as well. That we receive peace because he died for our sins. You can't see that. You have to believe that he died for your sins. And you miraculously experience the peace. You miraculously experience the healing, the liberation of the guilt off your shoulders, the weight off your shoulders. And so he would be buried in a grave, he would die. And not because he did anything wrong. No violence, no deceit in his mouth. And they tried him. I mean, they had all the media trying to find some dirt on him, all the politicians trying to find some dirt on him. Everyone was trying to find something wrong with him. They brought him to trial. Prosecuting attorneys, trying to find something against him, they could find nothing against him. A hired mob had to come in and lie. And even then, their accusations didn't agree with each other. In the middle of the night, a kangaroo court. Because there was no deceit in his mouth. There wasn't any evidence to condemn him. Exactly how Isaiah described it. Hundreds of years in advance. Verse 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, and he has put him to grief. And when you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. 
The Lord bruised him. The Lord allowed him to be bruised. The Lord sent him to be bruised. God gave his son. And that bruised word there is the same one that's used earlier in this chapter, not the same one that's used in Genesis 3, but very similar in definition. Again, he'd be an offering for sin. That's why he would die, as a lamb, as an offering for us. And yet he would see his seed and prolong his days. Well, what does that mean? How could he see his seed and have his days prolonged if we just read he was in a grave and he was cut off from the land of the living? How on earth could he see his seed? How on earth could he have his days prolonged? What would have to happen? He'd have to be raised from the dead. There'd have to be a resurrection. Another very specific detail. Was Yeshua raised from the dead? The disciples went to the tomb. A big, huge stone was placed in front of the tomb with a Roman seal on it. Then if that seal gets broken with soldiers there, they're going to execute the soldiers. How dare you allow the seal to be broken? How dare you allow anyone to get in and roll away that stone? Yet the stone was rolled away. And when the disciples came, the tomb was empty of any human, just the angels sitting there, because he had risen. The soldiers were executed. And the disciples went forth and told everyone. And were killed for doing so. Now, if they knew, and they would be the only ones to really know whether their testimony was true or not, it's one thing to lie, and to make up a religion or whatever, or to lie, make up some lie if you're going to prosper from it. But would you continue with that lie as they're killing you? As they're imprisoning you? Would you hold on to the lie that doesn't get you any gain? That doesn't make you any, bring you any riches? Would you continue with that lie? Who would continue? 12 people continue with that lie? Or 11 people? <laughs> and many others? Continue with that lie? If you knew firsthand that it was a lie? Now, you wouldn't die for a lie. They died for, a lie, for the truth. Because he was risen. The tomb was empty. And he does live. And he has seen his seed. He has a seed as well. Eve had a seed. Abraham had that same seed, the Messiah. Then the Messiah has a seed here. It says, he shall see his seed. We'll come back to that. And his days have been prolonged. He lives. Prophecy is accurate. He lives. And his work is prospering in his hand, going around the world. He's seen the labor of his soul and he's satisfied. He endured the shame, being despised, 
for the joy that was set before him. That many would be in heaven. This righteous servant has justified, has made right with God many. Because he bore their iniquities. It says this over and over again in this chapter. The important theme that he bore our sins. That he was punished for our sins that God took our punishment. What a loving God. What a great God. Verse 12, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. God has raised him up, seated him back at his right hand, divided him a portion with the great because he poured out his soul onto death. Poured out his blood, poured out his soul onto death because he died for us. Numbered with the transgressions, again, dying between two thieves, but not just numbered then and dying with the wicked, but he numbered himself with you and me. He made himself one of us. Divine, but became flesh. Counted himself as one of us. Numbered with us, counted with us, counted as one of us born in the flesh, lived in the flesh, died in the flesh, tempted in the flesh, tempted in all ways, just as you and I are. But by the power of the Holy Spirit did not sin. Numbered, counted with us, becoming with us, becoming one of us, loving us with an everlasting love. He tabernacled with us. God with us. Emmanuel. With us. And he stays with us and he is for us. He is on our side. And numbered as a transgressor, taking the sins of the world upon himself. Becoming sin for us. He who knew no sin became sin, taking on our transgressions, interceding in our behalf. Now, not just Isaiah talks about this. Many places in the Bible, we're going to look at King David, what King David had to write even before Isaiah wrote. In Psalm 22, starting in verse 1, Isaiah gave us kind of a span of his life Let me be born, root out of dry ground, difficult life, despised, rejected, that he would die, that he'd be cut off. And why? Not for any sin of his own, but for our own. But that he'd be resurrected, he would see his life and be prolonged. But in Psalm 22, it focuses in on only one aspect. The whole chapter. One aspect of that whole lifetime that Isaiah depicted. 
focuses in on his death, the day of his death. Starting in verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very words that Yeshua said when he was being killed. Now, whether he was thinking of this psalm, knowing this psalm was going to describe his death, and quoting it and crying it out, or God inspiring David hundreds, not over a thousand years before, knowing what the Messiah was going to say. Either way, it's accurate. Why have you forsaken me? Forsaken by God. Why would he be forsaken by God? He numbered himself with the transgressors. He took on the sins of the world. He bore our griefs. And so for a moment, the father had to separate himself. For the first time in all of eternity, had to separate himself. Bore our griefs. Afflicted of God. This is probably the greatest affliction that he experienced. Not being able to see God. Not being able to sense his presence. The father would have revealed himself with Yeshua carrying the weights of the world as God comes in contact with sin. Sin is destroyed. God is a consuming fire to sin. Yeshua would have been consumed. The father had to step back. Why have you forsaken me? Left all alone. Verse 6, I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake their head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And no doubt the people there standing around were saying that very thing. He claims to be God's son. And let God save him. Prove it to us. Come on down. Let God help you. Let God rescue you. And Satan instilling and inspiring the people to taunt him this way. He could have called down 10,000 angels to deliver him. But then he couldn't have been the sacrifice for us. He couldn't have died for our sins. He couldn't liberate us from the power of sin. And Satan uses those same temptations on us as well. That you're rejected by God, that God has separated himself from you. Your sins have eternally cut you off. If God really loved you, why is he letting you go through this? Why is God allowing you to go through that pain? Why is God allowing you to go through that trouble? If you're so blessed by God after all your prayers, after all your offerings, after all your reading, after all your love for him, and he's letting you have this problem in your house, he's letting you have this problem with your car and your computer and your life and your finances and your health. If God is so great and loves you, then why won't he answer your prayer? Why won't he rescue you? Why won't he help you out? God knows what's best. 
And if he allowed his own son to go through rejection and troubles and pain and death, why won't he let us? Why shouldn't we? Instead of saying, why me? We, when things are good, we should say, why me? <laughs> when things are bad, we should say, why not me? It was good enough for the martyrs down through the ages. It was good enough for Yeshua. It should be good enough for us as well. If he numbered himself with us, we can number ourselves with him. God knows what's best. And if Yeshua had to suffer and die for us so that we could be forgiven, so that his days could be prolonged, so that he could see many people be justified, then our short suffering for a time is well worth it and nothing compared to the glory that God has in store for us. We're not in heaven, if you haven't noticed that yet. Don't get it confused. He did not come to deliver us from problems. He came to deliver us from sin. And not only the punishment of sin, but the power of sin. So that we can be free and liberated. And so a worm despised, no comeliness in him, a reproach of men despised. Verse 14, I am poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint, my heart is like wax, it is melted within me, my strength is dried up like clay, like a clay pot, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. I can count all my bones, they look and stare at me. What an apt description of how he died, a thousand years in advance. After not eating or drinking since the Passover the night before, going all night, being beaten and bloodied, we read by his stripes we are healed, being whipped 39 times, with whips, with the ends of them, with glass and bone and pieces of metal that would grab into the flesh. And then when the whip is pulled back, it rips chunks of flesh and skin out. Bleeding profusely, becoming dehydrated with loss of blood and not having anything to drink poured out, bones at a joint after being beaten and pushed and harassed and then hung, bones at a joint, heart like wax, melted, seeing his disciples leave, father veiling himself, his heart is breaking. And that's what killed him. Broken heart, blood and water gushing out. 
strength dried up like clay, to being passed from Pilate's court to Caiaphas's and back and forth and up and down the streets of Jerusalem. And it's quite a distance. And, and then putting, having a piece of wood placed on his back, his bruised, open, scarred back, rough, splintery piece of wood jabbing in to the open wounds. No strength. Tongue clinging to his jaws, totally dehydrated. The dust of death, they can count his bones. Hanging there in such a position, totally naked, they can count all his bones. People standing there staring. It's not done in a corner. It's not done in the middle of the night. It's not done in a wooded area somewhere. It's not some secret assassination. Out in the open, people looking on, people staring. Just as described. On a main street, main thoroughfare. Even people who didn't even know anything about it, didn't have any plans of going by, just going by the street on their way, would be passing on this main road and seeing this. And the spring sunshine beating upon him, lifted up in the air, dehydrating him even more. Verse 16, for dogs have surrounded me, the congregation of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierced my hands and feet. By King David. In King David's eye, day, no one was killed by having your hands and your feet pierced. I wouldn't even kill anyone. All you did was pierce their hands and pierce their feet. They wouldn't die. How could David know? Unless this was prophetic. Unless this was inspired by God. God knows. Hundreds of years in advance, thousands of years in advance. This is how his heel was bruised 4,000 years in advance. The serpent bruising his heel. How could Moses know when he's writing the book of Genesis that he would die by having his heel bruised? Not the way most people die. Until the Romans came along and invented this satanic, cruel way of execution. Pierced his hands and his feet. Who would think of writing that a thousand years before it was done? So clear a description. And just as God knew this, thousands of years in advance. He knows your life in advance. He knows what's happening today. He knows every aspect of your life. He knows what's going to happen tomorrow. And he's there before us. And he cares. And he's there with us. And he's suffering with us just as he suffered with his son. 
and maybe even more so. You tell me, what would be more painful? For someone to beat you up? Or for someone to tie you up and force you to watch them beat your child up? The Father is with us as Satan beats us up, as he harasses us, as he bruised and whipped and beat and mocked God's only begotten Son. The Father suffers, and he suffers with us. But he knows there has to be a time of pain before there can be a time of deliverance. Prophecy is, is that he would bruise the serpent's head. Only a bruising. The serpent is still alive. But there will come a time where his head will be cut off. Yes. Hallelujah is right. They divide, verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. In Jerusalem, we can see today the stones, the rocks crying out that what was written in advance happened. We can see etched in the stone the actual pavement of 2,000 years ago, the game boards that the Romans would make where they would gamble. And so they gambled for his garments. Again, he had no riches, but he was buried with the rich. All he had that was of any value <laughs> was a seamless cloth, no doubt his talit. They cast lots for his garments. Just as David wrote, the disciples recorded as an event that happened. Verse 21, save me from the lion's mouth, and you answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All ye descendants of Jacob, give glory to him and fear him. All you offspring of Israel, all the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship you. They will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. So it described that he would die, how he would die, and that God would answer his prayer. They would declare his name to his brethren. How could he declare God's name to his brethren if he was dead? Unless, like we saw in Isaiah, he'd be resurrected. So both Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, both saying the same thing, and again, other prophecies as well. He'd be resurrected. And thus, we, as we accept his sacrifice in our behalf. We can praise him. We can praise the Lord. We can give thanks for what he has done. All the descendants of Jacob, we can glorify him. We can fear him. All of his offspring, his seed, 
those who believe in him, those who accept him, become his offspring, his seed. To all the ends of the world, to Israel and all the nations. What a prophecy. That this gospel would go to the ends of the world and that people from every nation to every tribe, every kindred, every language would be in heaven as a result of his work in our behalf. All the families, all the nations will worship him. Worship service in heaven will have people represented from everywhere. We will declare his righteousness to people yet to be born. His gospel will continue to the end of this age. We will declare that he has done this, that he has done this in our behalf, that he has died for us, that he has poured out his great love for us. While we were yet sinners, God loved us. We first, we love him because he first loved us. Our response, our love is really just a response to his love. Proclaiming that he has done this. And this is what God's wanting us to do. To be filled with his righteousness and to go forth and to tell the world what he has done the disciples took it to then, the then-known world there. The risk of their lives, should we do any less? God has called us. And in the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 14, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So right here, in one verse, it summarized all that we just read. Just as we, the children of Eve, have flesh and blood, he, God, would Emmanuel, he would come and dwell with us and become one with us. He would number himself with the transgressors. He would take the same. He would partake of the same exact flesh and blood that we have. Knowing our trials. Knowing our disappointments. Knowing what it's like to be alone. Knowing what it's like to be rejected. Knowing what it's like to be misunderstood. Knowing what it's like to have your friends and your family not understand you and even reject you. Knowing what it's like to be abused, knowing what it's like to be beaten, knowing what it's like to die. He numbered himself with us. Knowing what it's like to be tempted, all temptations, every temptation, in all ways, partook of the same. That through death, that he would die. That he would be bruised. But that through his death, he would bruise the serpent's head. So that he can come back as a conqueror and destroy the devil once and for all. 
Praise the Lord. And the offspring, the seed, his seed. Galatians 3.29. And if you belong to the Messiah, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So Yeshua, the Messiah, is the seed of Eve, the seed of Abraham, the root of Jesse, of David. But then we, as we accept him as our Lord and Savior, we also join with him, becoming his offspring, and become the seed of God as well. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to you, that you should be called the children of God. What a wonderful promise. What a wonderful privilege. We don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We've rejected him. All we like sheep have gone astray. But he has come to us, seeking us out, chasing us down. Adam, where are you? Eve, where are you? Seeking us out. I want to adopt you. I want to take you back. I want you as my own. We become the seed as well. And then back to Isaiah. We looked at Isaiah chapter 53, almost the whole chapter. Now we'll go to the very next chapter. Chapter 53 talked about the Messiah. Chapter 54 talks about us. The Messiah's seed. Verse 17. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. Amen. Amen. The devil is going to bite at our heels. The devil is going to nip at our heels. He's going to try and trip us up. He's going to try and attack us. He's going to try and bruise us. But no weapon that's formed against you shall prosper. Because of Yeshua's death, because of his righteousness, we will be able to condemn them in the judgment. Silence their wicked lies. This is our heritage. This is the authority that God has bestowed upon us in covering us in his righteousness as he clothed Adam and Eve with those lambskins representing his righteousness. Our righteousness is not from ourselves, not from any good that we do. We have no righteousness of our own, but our righteousness is from him. His righteousness that we receive by faith. As we allow him to renew in us a new heart, as we allow him to take out our hearts of stone and bury it with him in the tomb and give us new minds, new desires, new lives that our righteousness is from him. And God will lead us from victory to victory, through the struggles, through the trials, yes. and on into heaven yes. for all eternity. And so as we pray together, if you're going through some trial right now, the devil is bruising you, hurting you, tempting you, accusing you, 
lying about you. Claim the authority of Yeshua. And in his power, rebuke the devil. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. You have no right over us. The price has been paid in my behalf. Yes, I've made many mistakes, but Yeshua has paid the price for me. He has borne my grief. He has carried my sorrows. He has become sin for me. That I might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so if you want to claim those promises in a moment when we pray, you can do that. Secondly, if there is some sin on your record, if there's some sin unconfessed that you have not let go of, that you have not confessed, that you have not repented of, Yeshua has already paid the price for it. Give him the keys. What are you doing holding on to it? He bought it. He paid for it. Let go already. You're stealing it from him. Give him the sins. Confess it to him. Repent of it. Let him give you the victory. Die to self. Die to the sin. Surrender to him. Spend a moment when we pray, if God is convicting you of some area in your life that's not right with God, just between you and him, confess it, give it over. Third, if you haven't accepted Yeshua as your Messiah, if you haven't accepted his sacrifice in your behalf, if you haven't accepted his love for you, if you've seen tonight these amazing prophecies pointing to the Messiah, and you want to acknowledge that and accept him, and accept his substitution in your behalf, and receive the forgiveness, be freed of the guilt, be healed of the sin-sick soul. In a moment when we pray, accept him into your heart. Tell him, I accept you, Yeshua. I choose to believe. Help my unbelief. Give me faith to accept you. Or if you want to praise him for first loving you, for coming after you, for putting enmity between you and the devil, for putting a division between you and the devil, for giving you hatred towards sin, for changing your heart, for giving you hatred for the things that you once loved, and a desire for the things you used to hate, for putting a division between you and the carnal nature, putting a division between you and the devil. If you want to thank him for standing there and taking most of the blows. Everything that we receive, any pain, any difficult we go through, had to go through Yeshua first. And he only allows through what he knows will be best for us in the long run. That will help us or help others to find heaven. And so if you want to thank him for taking the abuse, for standing there in between you and the devil, in a moment when we pray, you can praise him and thank him. You want to thank him for the forgiveness that he has already given to you. And you've already received. In a moment when we pray, you can thank him and praise him. If you want to thank him because he's high and lifted up and because he's coming again, you want to praise him. If you want to thank him because the devil's time is short and he's almost done 
And he's going to be destroyed once and for all and for all eternity. And in a moment when we pray, you can praise the Lord. Amen. If any of those areas or some other area God's speaking to your heart and mind, and let us pray and let God do his work. Our Lord and our God, ruler of the universe, knower of all things, thank you for loving us with an everlasting love. Thank you for chasing us down. Thank you for coming after us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving your son. Thank you, Yeshua, for becoming the sacrifice for us. Thank you for being bruised for us. Thank you for bruising the devil, and thank you for coming back to destroy him once and for all. Thank you for giving us authority and power and victory in you to resist his temptations just as you did through your same power, through your same spirit. Fill us with your spirit and give us victory over the temptations. Thank you for healing us and healing our minds and healing our wounds and loving us in spite of our past sins. Thank you for forgiving us and cleansing us. Thank you for being high and lifted up. Thank you for seeing all things. Thank you for allowing no temptation to take us except as common to man. But thank you for always giving a way of escape. Thank you for being with us and never leaving us nor forsaking us. We praise your name that you live. Thank you, Father, for resurrecting him. Come, Holy Spirit, and live within our hearts. In Yeshua's holy name, amen.